Today we're going to talk about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace from then on and forevermore. The child born bearing the authority of God to rule the nations of the earth, this child who would bring a great light to those living in darkness, this child who would be the greatest of all counselors, greater even than all the spiritual beings that the one God has created. As was hinted at in the Eternal Father, his kingdom will last forever. Now in the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this kingdom that Isaiah is talking about is either called the kingdom of the heavens, that's Matthew, usually Matthew's language, or the kingdom of God. In the New Testament book of Revelation, it's called the new heavens and the new earth. And most Christians today call it simply and quite anemically, really, heaven. But what we often call heaven, and Revelation calls the new heavens and the new earth, and the Gospels call the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, is that about which Isaiah was prophesying in these verses. And as I observed at the outset, the first prophetic word of Isaiah about the coming kingdom is that it has no end. And that is a theme throughout the scriptures. Perhaps the prophet Daniel was echoing this prophecy of Isaiah when he saw the coming of this same kingdom when God enabled him to interpret the meaning of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a great statue being destroyed. And that statue, some of you remember from Daniel represented the kingdoms of the earth. This is what Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 to 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Just as you saw that a stone was broken off from the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, that's the statue, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is certain and its interpretation is trustworthy. Same kingdom Isaiah is talking about. And the coming of this same kingdom, the kingdom of which Isaiah prophesied and which Daniel foresaw, has been described in the New Testament book of Revelation in the following way. Just let this language wash over you. It's meant to ignite our imaginations. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Remember, the sea is the chaos and the waters that were nothingness at the beginning. The Spirit of God was hovering. No more of that. If you like the ocean, maybe there'll be water, but no more of that, no more of the destruction. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, this is John who's receiving this vision, 
It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The one who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then a little later in chapter 22, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. It's a lot bound up in that little sentence of Isaiah, isn't it? But this is all bound up, both in Isaiah's prophecy, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, and in Jesus' declaration, repent for the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. This is what he's talking about. Praise be to God. But there's a phrase in Isaiah's prophecy that's worth considering more closely. And I wonder if it stood out to you the way it stood out to me this week. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Now I don't know how you imagine these things, but I have a tendency to think of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in very static terms. When I hear that something will last forever, I think of something permanent and unchanging. For some reason, edifices like the pyramids in Egypt come to mind or thousand-year-old cathedrals. But that's not the image given to us by Isaiah. The future kingdom of God in the new heavens and the new earth is one of endless increase. Now, of course, all that we're discussing today is in some ways metaphorical language. After all, who could describe the coming kingdom of God with any specificity? And yet, these metaphors are meant to teach us. They're meant to give us an indication of the kind of world God is inviting us to live into. They help us to glimpse what can't be seen and to imagine what cannot be yet understood. And Isaiah has invited us to imagine the coming kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, not as a stagnant place in which everything remains the same and never changes, but rather as a place in which increase and growth never cease. Part of the serpent's deception in the Garden of Eden was to convince us humans that God had prohibited us from eating from the tree of knowledge because he was afraid of our growth and our development. The serpent suggested that it was by the acquisition of knowledge that humans would become like God. And the serpent implied that God was afraid for that to happen. That's what he said to Eve. And I suspect that many too think of the God of Christianity as one who seeks to limit human development or to restrict human knowledge, and to control humanity's achievements. How often has the modern world caricatured the Christian religion 
as an obstacle to progress and our beliefs as impediments to the peaceful coexistence of all people. Well, to those ancient accusations, and those are not new accusations, that's been, Israel was accused of that, early Christians were accused of that, were accused of it still. But to those ancient accusations, God through Isaiah has provided a poignant rebuttal. Far from being a static kingdom in which all things remain forever as they were on the first day humans entered the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God will be one of eternal increase, of eternal development, of eternal growth. The difference, of course, will be that our development will be superintended by God and will be guided by Jesus as our mentor and our teacher as it stands now, our teachers and our mentors have been the spiritual forces in rebellion against God, along with our own inclinations, our own interests, and our own desires. These are the things that have led us to this point. There will be no end to the increase, to the increase of his government or of peace. There's something organic about the way Isaiah has described this kingdom, and that's not surprising. Far from a place full of disembodied spirits playing ethereal harps and floating around in endless song and contemplation, which was heaven for Plato, the kingdom of God has been described in the scriptures as a place in which the material and the spiritual are brought together and finally coexisting. It's been called, after all, not simply the new heavens, but the new heavens and the new earth. We are, in the language of the Apostle Paul, to be given immortal bodies. And Paul calls those spiritual bodies. And what he means is that they're bodies not made of dust, but made of spirit. But they are bodies. Eternal life has not been described as disembodied energy or something like that. Eternal life is to be lived in bodies, even though there'll be bodies made of spirit instead of bodies made of dust as they are now. And Jesus' body is an indication, it's a first fruit, it's a foreshadowing of the kinds of bodies we expect to receive when we are resurrected in him. And Jesus was res resurrected in an immortal body, the same type Paul was trying to describe. And in that body, let it settle on you, he ate fish. You know any ghosts that could eat fish? He ate. His disciples were able to touch him. You remember when he invited Thomas to stick his hand in, this, in the hole? He was touched. And he interacted with physical reality. He picked things up. He prayed over them. He walked with his disciples on the road to Emmaus for a good long time. Now, of course, he also appeared in locked rooms without using the door. So the body made of spirit apparently does not have all the same rules and limitations of the bodies we have presently been given, but it will be far from the disembodied souls of the pagan Greek philosophers. We do hope for resurrection from the dead, right? Not release from the body. Even more, when the First Testament prophets spoke of the coming kingdom of God and of the new heavens and the new earth, that language is not actually from Revelation. Revelation is quoting Isaiah. Isaiah said that first. They spoke of it in decidedly physical terms. 
For example, in speaking of the coming kingdom of God, Isaiah said the following. This is Isaiah chapter 11, just a few chapters after the verses we've been thinking about. Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fattened steer will be together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And later, in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25, he prophesied the following. Again, this is the kingdom of God that Jesus said was drawing near. This is the new heavens and the new earth in which Jerusalem will come down to dwell on the earth. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I'll also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in, the, in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives only a few days or an old person who does not live out his days for the youth will die at the age of a hundred and the one who does not reach the age of a hundred will be thought accursed. Metaphorical language, but very earthy. They'll build houses and inhabit them. I read a tweet this week where they said, what is your dream job? And the person in the tweet said, I do not dream of labor. Isaiah did. <laughs> They'll build houses and inhabit them. They'll also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They'll not build and another inhabit. They'll not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people and my chosen ones who fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or give birth to children for disaster, for they are the descendants of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will listen. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Isaiah's descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth are decidedly physical. Isaiah speaks of farming, eating, laboring, children, and animals. And this is not simply a First Testament way of envisioning the coming kingdom of God. As we've already observed, Jesus ate in his resurrected body. And the book of Revelation, as we've also seen, described the New Jerusalem as a place where the fruit and leaves of the tree of life are consumed regularly. Jesus too often described the kingdom of God in terms of a banquet. I think that's where the kids on the video got the idea that it's like a birthday party. Now that's how it starts. That's just the beginning. As I've opined in previous discussions, the earth is where humanity has been conceived. But it is in the new heavens and the new earth that we are meant to live. The day of our death, according to Jesus, is in fact the day of our birth. And for Isaiah, where we're headed is a kingdom endlessly increasing in dominion. And even more, it's not a kingdom whose increase is defined by power. I mean, how do kingdoms of the earth spread their dominion? They do it by power, greed, ambition, war, violence, acquisition. But Jesus extends his kingdom by an increase in peace. Isaiah has also prophesied that the kingdom of God will be established and upheld with justice and with righteousness. 
In summary, the coming king would continually increase his dominion and peace in order to establish a kingdom. But he's tasked not only with establishing a kingdom, but also with upholding a kingdom. And that makes sense, right? I mean, if it's going to last forever, it's going to have to be maintained. He'll uphold or maintain the growth and peace of his kingdom by means of justice and righteousness. That's how he'll do it. The Hebrew word translated justice is mishpat. I didn't put it on the screen because it's not on the quiz. But mishpat, it comes from the verb shafat, which means to act as a lawgiver, a judge, or a governor. Now today, the idea of justice has often been conflated with fairness, as we've discussed before. However, this word family does not refer to ensuring that everyone receives the same outcome. A person who exercises mishpat is tasked with executing existing laws faithfully, explaining laws clearly, in some cases enacting new laws, and in many instances resolving disputes. By what means will this king guarantee the unending duration of his kingdom? He'll uphold it first by justice, by mishpat. In other words, this king will not only be king, but he'll also be the lawgiver the law interpreter, and the controversy settler of the coming kingdom. He'll ensure that the laws are just, that the interpretation of the laws are unbiased, and that controversies are settled equitably. And you're like, wait, there's all that in the new heavens and the new earth? Yeah, it's a real place. And since Isaiah has already declared that he will be a wonderful counselor, there's no better news than that he will not only be over the government, but over the judicial system as well. Now, for some of us, the old adage continues to speak. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Isaiah certainly seems to be describing a king with absolute power. I mean, how could any reasonable person hand over such power to anyone? Shouldn't there be checks and balances? Is there going to be a judicial and a legislative and executive branch? I mean, can we really trust one person with all of this? Normally... No, but this king is God in the flesh. And therefore, as Isaiah has insisted, this is no ordinary human king. Not only will he uphold God's kingdom in justice, but also in righteousness. What a claim. The Hebrew word translated righteousness is zedekah. And zedekah connotes the idea of being in right relationship with God and with others. It generally assumes truthfulness and faithfulness to the law of God. To say that this king would rule in righteousness means that he would rule submitted to the law of God. Now, many of the nations of the world maintain their power through moral or ethical compromises. If we thought that was never true, we're learning that we were wrong today, right? How many times has the penetrating gaze of history uncovered times in which soldiers and governors and other leaders broke the laws of their respective countries in order to achieve a goal that they presumed to be more important than the law? How many times have leaders thought themselves to be above the law or exempt from judgment because of the importance of their position or the significance of their decisions? The kingdom of God will not be upheld by such a leader. The king will maintain the kingdom of God in righteousness, that is, in full submission to the laws of God. This king will not be duplicitous, but truthful. He'll not be vindictive or show favoritism. Instead, he'll be just and submissive to the laws that govern the kingdom. 
This king will not be above the law of God. Instead, he will live and govern in submission to the law of God. And that was so important for Isaiah and so important for the New Testament authors when they saw it in Jesus that the Apostle Paul described Jesus in precisely these same terms. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. This is what is meant by righteousness. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I want, I think what I'm about to say, I speak for you as well, but really I can't speak for you, only for myself. So I'm going to say I, but I know that you're with me. Many of you are with me in what I'm about to say. Now I have to confess, I can't demonstrate to any of you that this will prove true. There's no way for me to prove that to you. The only proof we've been given that these promises of God are true is Jesus. His birth, life, teaching, example, and death along with the personal testimonies of those who witnessed his resurrection and ascension, are the only evidences we have been given, both that Isaiah's prophecies will prove true and that the teachings of the prophets and apostles about where we are and where we're going were given to them by the one God of all creation. But what I can say, and I know many of you are with me, is that I believe them. And even more, it's the biblical vision of the kingdom of God, of the new heavens and the new earth that I've shared with you today, that is the joy set before me, enabling me to endure this world. Personally, and I know I speak for many of us, but I can only really speak for myself, I'm not drawn by opulence or wealth or boundless food or birthday parties or streets of gold myself. I mean, that wouldn't be enough. For me, I follow Jesus because I'm finding him to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. I long for a king who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. I ache for a leader who upholds his kingdom with justice and in righteousness. And when I read the scriptures, I believe I encounter him. If I could choose any country to which to swear allegiance, I would swear allegiance to Jesus alone. If I could choose any nation for which to give my life, it would be one ruled by the likes of Jesus. Sometimes I doubt, too, that the promises made by Isaiah are true. The world so often looks like a runaway train. But in those moments, I remember that I don't only believe Jesus is Lord. More than that, I want Jesus to be Lord, and that's different. It's best when they go together. <laughs> I want the one who preached the Sermon on the Mount and who sacrificed himself 
that humanity might be set free from sin and death. I want him to rule the nations of the earth. I want the government to be on his shoulders. For of all those who have ever lived and ever will, I trust him alone to establish his kingdom and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And I know many of you are with me, but as for me, I will have no other Lord. And for those who share this hope, maybe you'd be willing to confess aloud with me that Jesus is Lord, and you would ask with me for him to come. There's no way for me to prove this, but of what I know of God in the scriptures, it seems to me that Jesus will most likely come when his people ask. Are we asking? If you share my hope, Would you proclaim with me, Jesus is Lord? And would you ask him out of the depths of your heart to come? Do you long for this kingdom to be realized? If you do, then join with me. We'll say it together. Jesus is Lord. Come, Lord Jesus.